Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Blue Ribbon Podcasts. We're going to talk about shipping and shipping containers and shipping ships. What's that thing about ship shipping, shipping ships? How many shipping? I don't know. Some kind of thing I heard one time. Um, so a f- couple of years ago, I read a book by Mark Levinson about the shipping container. Something like uh, how it made the world smaller and the economy bigger. And really fascinating look at where containers came from. Uh, back in the fifties, up through Vietnam, uh, the way it, you know, played in the military, how it, uh, you know, helped a lot. The invention of the container helped a lot with shrinkage. Um, and it showed me how very, very different, uh, things moving on the sea are compared to how they move on the highway inside our borders. Um, I've always been fascinated by it, but never really cared to go much beyond reading that book until, the last few months when things started getting crazy and we have ships scattered all over the sea and we're being told things about supply chain issues and can't get them unloaded. And, um, I started playing with TikTok, and I ran across this account called Logistox and, uh, a lady named Sarah, and she's telling me things and I'm going, wow, this is really interesting. I, I like watching her content. And so I reached out, and she has agreed to come on and talk to us this evening about her experience. And I just, I kind of want to learn. I want to find out what's real and what's not real um, and, and see, you know, what somebody that's actually dealing with this stuff on a day-to-day basis, what they're dealing with. So without further ado, let's bring Sarah on here. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So why don't you start a little? Um, so I, I live in Philadelphia, have always lived outside of the Philadelphia area. Um, I graduated school in 2009, right when there was a economic depression. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just uh, was interested in sales. And, you know, at the time and, and still to this day, a lot of uh, 3PL uh, positions account management, customer service relations are all kind of sales roles. So I applied for a sales role at a large 3PL known as CH Robinson. So I got, um, I got started at CH Robinson. I was there for about seven years. Um, and now I've been at uh, another company, NFI, uh, for the past six years. And through that time period, you know, I've moved into uh, multiple different roles. I've been an account manager. I was uh, heavily involved in carrier sales in um, at CH Robinson. When I moved to NFI, I uh, was managing operations, which you know to translate was just managing a book of business for uh, our holistic customer group uh, for that brokerage or three PL office. Um, but you know that experience uh, working at a, a different kind of three PL, right? Uh, CH Robinson is purely is pure 3PL. NFI has their own fleet, has their own global division, has their own uh, warehousing distribution services, one of the largest privately owned uh, logistics companies uh, in in the United States. So, you know, because of that, there is a, a strong, um, you know, there's a there's a, an ability to grow, you know, anything that you want to understand further from just connecting with folks um, and really growing uh, any sort of knowledge that you want in a particular area. So 
that's kind of, uh, I guess, my background and how I got to where I am today and, and why I'm still in logistics. Is it fair to say that doing the TikToks is your kind of outlet to share your experience? I mean, you, you know, p- people that do it and do it well, the content creators generally like have a, a mission or, or, or something. What, what led you to, to start doing the, the logistics on there? Um, so I actually got into it to improve my public speaking. Um, see, <laughs> you know, I, I do it to, to practice public speaking. I do it to practice, you know, understanding industry knowledge, right? We're in a, we're in a, a an ecosystem of, of transportation that really requires uh, the ability to navigate multiple modes of transportation. So one, it's educational for me in order to, to understand different pieces of the puzzle and how it fits into what I might do on a day-to-day basis. But originally I got into TikTok because one, I liked TikTok. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a way to gain volume uh, quickly through, you know, uh, small sound bites, right? Um, as opposed to, you know, starting up on YouTube or some other platform like that, where you might not be able to build a base as easily or, or quickly. Um, but honestly, I was, I was just trying to work on my public speaking. Okay. So <clears throat> what we do, we, we, we're a small fleet leash to land star. We, you know, we're working on having the 15 trucks here within the next few weeks. Um, so we're very, very, very small, but we work, as a part of the Landstar system. So we work a lot with C.H. Robinson and J.B. Hunt, lots of 3PL stuff. Landstar has some of their own freight. Um, you know, but the, the to me, it, it seems like um, trucking, uh, interstate trucking is very different uh, from how freight gets moved across the seas and into and out of the ports and out into the dis- distribution network. And, I don't, you know, I don't think your average person thinks about where these things came from and how they got here, you know, but they were on a ship at some point, you know, they got, they, they went to a port, they were loaded into a container, they were put on a ship, the ship traveled. And, you know, we think about, oh, I push the button on Amazon and it shows up here tomorrow. Um, how truly vast is this global shipping operation and how in the world do they keep up with where things are and the transit times because ships don't go very fast. I assume they're, they're pretty slow. Right. So all of this, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to think of the breadth of this, of, of your side of shipping that we don't touch. Right. I mean, it's huge. I'm not really sure where to start with, with that, you know, type of, uh, you know, question in terms of the breadth of it. Right. You know, most, uh, most shipping is, uh, on containers is referred to as TEUs, meaning 20 foot equivalents, right? So, and since the 60s, they have been growing the size of these vessels to carry more and more TEUs. So, and then you have, you know, the world is round, right? So you've only got a few different routes you can take. Two of them contain a canal, and canals have only a certain width that can move through them. And some uh, directions don't have anything getting in their way. So they can take the largest ships you can create, uh, you know, and still remain safe. I guess I don't know how they'll they'll continue to make them bigger and bigger. 
Um, but the, you know, the smallest, smallest container ships carry about 5,000 TEUs and the largest ones carry almost 24,000 TEUs. So um, the Panama Canal can not take that big of a ship. They can take um, the length of about 350 meters, which might be up to 16, 17,000 TEUs. That is a rough estimate. The Suez uh, can take ships that are 400 meters long, which would be some of those larger 20,000 TEUs. And then obviously the open seas can take the biggest vessels. But that means it only really leaves one side of the United States to take on those vessels, right? Which would be Tacoma, Seattle, Long Beach, uh, and LA. Otherwise, you know, if you wanted to try to reroute a ship, you'd have to reroute it through Panama. So you'd have to think about the size of that ship. Then you'd also have to compare which ports can even take in that size of a ship because ports can also only have width and dimensions that they can only take on certain size ships. So it is different uh, regardless of, of where you go. I think there's 13 ports in the United States. So, and the most recent one uh, was in, added in 2009 in South Carolina and only one steamship line uses it because they're in the middle of a lawsuit. So that, well, that makes me think of, of, of not very long ago. Cause you know, we know Jacksonville, we know Savannah, Charleston, you know? Um, and I remember when, when the first started, they first started talking about the backlog. Oh, well let's just move them over here. I even think the governor of Florida was like, we'll take them. But now I'm thinking, okay, well, just because you can take them doesn't mean you can take them. Right. If, Correct. if they literally can't get there. And of course, you know, that's a long trip. You know, you, you can't pick that ship up and run it through the Mississippi river. You know, it's got to go all the way around a continent basically. Right. Um, so yeah, you'd either have to be able to fit through the Panama canal or you'd have to be able to go all the way around South America. So when did this, did this start in 2020 or what, what was this? Mm -hmm. We started feeling it later, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. You start, you always start feeling, feeling these types of things way later. Right. So, you know, in 2020, the pandemic occurred, um, which closed down a ton of activity. Right. So if you look at um, the amount of inbound containers that came in through uh, 2020 uh, Q1 and two versus 2021 Q1 and Q2, there's a drastic increase in comparison only because the ports basically shut down because of COVID outbreaks. Um, and then in the second half of the year, freight came rearing back, right? As folks adjusted their spending uh, opportunities away from services and towards durable goods. And the majority of the durable goods that we get are imported, imported from China. You know, when when we think about total Asian imports into America, you know, our country receives maybe 20, like I think in 2021, it was about uh, 26 million TEUs of imports into the United States. And about 19 million of them were from Asia. You know, so the majority, the majority of our trade is, you know, from containers is from Asia. Uh, and a lot of it is from China. Um, and 
Um, I don't remember what I don't remember what question I was answering now. Well, we Where's you I know, <laughs> I, I it's you you I think you you know you logically want to be like oh well there's China and there's Europe and you know there's big blue water and we'll just put the stuff on the ships but um you know I, you hear so much about trade deficit and you know people are screaming now well let's just make it in America um I don't I don't care about any of that you know I, I've got I've got a disposable income um I want the best thing I can get the cheapest I can get it I don't really care where it comes from um for whatever reason we have this this uh this ratio that you talked about of how much comes from China and how much comes from Asia as to whether it would come from the other side, from the Middle East or from Africa or from Europe. Um, but it, it's like we're seeing in the trucking side that we do drive in. We don't do any reefer. We don't do any flatbed. Um, we're seeing these unbelievably unprecedented rates. And other than about, I don't know, would you say, Larry, about a four-week lull in 2020, it immediately picked back up for us. Like, we didn't we didn't slow down just but for two or three weeks. And then we shot back up, and then the rates have just been insane. To me, logically thinking, supply and demand. You know, some for some reason, the demand or the supply of trucks is down, and the... The, the available freight is up. And, and so these rates are crazy. Um, and we're just keeping going, but I'm just trying to, because it's so big, that's, that's the thing. It's like, I want to understand it, what's happening with, but my gosh, different governments and different countries and different, uh, languages and people and cultures and all of this stuff. It's, it's, it's a miracle to me that anything gets anywhere. Anyway. So, like, you know, I will say that, you know, and I remembered now what your question was. <laughs> so, right. It was about how did we get here from 2020? Yeah. Right. So, you know, when the, when the freight came roaring back, um, right. And manufacturing was popping up in different areas, right. You had all this erratic demand all over the, you know, internationally as well as domestically, depending on who got closed down, who opened back up, right. That, created all this kind of bunching at the ports because ships would come in in large amounts and then it might slow down and it would come in in another large amount. And, you know, coming into the second half of the year, most ports in the United States are expecting a peak or a busy season for about six months of the year. That's all they're prepared for, right? So when you're coming mm -hmm. into the peak season of 2020, you expect that to last from October until the Lunar New Year of the next year. Because demand continued for durable goods, right? We have we still had strong services, uh, strong strong numbers towards services in 2021. It has not met the same ratio as it was previously before the pandemic. So durable goods and those and the, the um, demand for durable goods continued very strongly into into 2021. And so after the Lunar New Year. There was no break, which typically ports would would see. They would have six months to catch up on any backlog they might have had from the peak season that just occurred. But instead, they continued to move, uh, you know, with strong volumes all the way up until this next peak season. And so, you know, what we're going to see over the next couple months is if there is any slowdown from that. 
Some companies think there will be, some don't, right? But predictions and crystal balls have been breaking and popping for the past two years anyways, right? So, um, you know, the Lunar New Year does hit uh, February 1st this year, which is a little bit sooner. And because of the COVID uh, Omicron variant, folks are expecting a little bit of a drop off for some vessels coming inbound that could allow folks uh, in the largest ports to catch up. So I'm just curious, what does a Lunar New Year have to do with it? Like, is that just happen to be Chinese New Year? Year. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just another way to say Chinese New Year. So it's just usually when there is a break in, uh, that's when the peak season ends. So, right, most of the freight is coming in for, um, you know, in uh, for uh, uh, Black Friday, then for Christmas, and then everything that comes in until February, mid-February or late February is usually, you know, um, different holiday stuff or, you know, Valentine stuff that comes in, some some specialty goods, et cetera. Um, but the Lunar New Year is typically when you start to see a break and usually March has lower numbers, but they are expecting it to still pick up again in, in April, potentially. Sarah, I have a question. Uh, all, this, all the numbers you gave us as far as TEUs that come into the country. Do you have the numbers on the exports? Um, I don't know the total exports. Um, what I will say is, um, and you know, this is from you know these trade deficits, these tariffs that were put in place, right? I, I just mentioned how how much uh, freight you know we receive from Asia, and you know a lot of those tariffs that were put in place in in 2019 in the Trump administration are still active with, especially with China and those uh, trade relations. So our uh, exports are down uh, 5% and our imports are up 13%. Um, And so there is, that is creating an incredible imbalance in outbound container flows which is really what drove up a lot of the pricing of containers. It also puts containers in the wrong places. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's, um, you know, I, you know, people talk about chassis a lot and like what created a shortage there. Well, the, we, we imported the majority of our chassis from a Chinese manufacturer, which we stopped doing because of Mm. the costs. So, you know, U.S. manufacturers in 2021, year of the tiger, that's right, Thomas Osborne. Um, uh, And I'm I'm only happy about that because, you know, Philly, eye of the tiger, you know, whatever, you know. Um, So uh, what was I saying? Oh, chassis, right? So um, U.S. manufacturers uh, throughout 2021, that could never compete with this Chinese manufacturer who was building and shipping chassis to the United States, um, they had to restart up all of their manufacturing lines and hire labor in order to try to fill this deficit of chassis that occurred in the United States that was reducing the efficiencies of these ports. And so, you know, they're, I think the, I th- the Chinese manufacturer is like CMI something, um, they are they are building a warehouse in the United States, which would avoid the tariffs so that they could manufacture chassis here as well. But like one of the largest U.S. manufacturers, Stoughton, um, you know, will only have produced, you know, they, they expect to have enough chassis 
to manage the volume by fall of 2022. So there's still a big deficit there and one that, you know, they, they, multiple manufacturers in the United States tried to catch up on, but we just didn't have the the ability to to keep up or the infrastructure in order to to build that pool back up. So the Stoughton, of course, is also a big um, trailer manufacturer, you know, for 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 freight here as well. So I'm I'm assuming that I mean everybody's way behind on production. I'm assuming trailers are the same way. So what, I mean, how, how do they possibly foresee catching up on, I mean, I can't imagine them making chassis over dry fans or over platform trailers. Right. That's what they're predicting. But like everything else, right. That gets pushed out, right. These are, you know, I think they're giving a conservative estimate, right. But they're still also plagued by, um, you know, original equipment manufacturers not having, you know, the right parts and pieces or, or having delays and, and cutting down, cutting down what they're manufacturing or what they're, you know, being timid about what they can commit to customers with because they are uncertain. Um, so again, these were, I mean, these were new production lines that had to be started, started fresh. So I, I understand that uncertainty as well. So what's the cost to ship a TEU now from, from Asia? <clears throat> Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I actually, it's, um, you know, they say the cost has gone up 300% since, uh, the numbers uh, since, I hear is it was pre pandemic. It was about $4,000 maybe. And now it's somewhere between 24 and $30,000. Does that sound right to you? Sure. That sounds <clears throat> about right. Sounds, yeah. So it, would a 40 foot container be two TEUs? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, I, I see the containers on the chassis rolling up and down the road and I've, I've seen a few of them loaded. I hauled one one time and I don't ever do, I don't ever want to do that again. Um, so the standardization seems crazy that we all agreed on. So we've got 53s, right? And we've got 48s and we've got 20s and we've got these different sizes. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that the, the customer, whoever the shipper is, you know, has got to look at the the tonnage and the cubic feet and decide on what they're going to send and, and, and how they're going to get it there. But then you throw this, this, this cost in, I mean, my God, what we're 300%, like, like how, how in the world do you absorb that cost in your, in your, in your end, you know, with what you're pricing to your customers Cause I'm not you know, just as a guy, just as, as a cons- basic consumer, I see some stuff going up and here and there, but everything seems pretty flat. You know, I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just amazed that the whole thing even works. It's just, it just baffles my mind. So there's, you know, there's, there's two parts to, you know, to kind of answer what you had just asked, right? Obviously we're seeing some inflation in wages, but that is not, it's not grow our, you know, wages are not uh, growing as fast as the consumer pricing index that has exploded. So we are seeing higher pricing for, for the majority of items that, that we buy on a a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So then we, when we think about, how are companies absorbing this cost? Well, if you think about our biggest importers and exporters, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, Tyson Foods, etc., they are recording quarter over quarter growth, 
right? So it's, they're, they're very profitable. It's not impacting them. It's impacting small and medium-sized shippers, right? right? Mm. So it's, it's just creating, you know, these, these larger gaps between these like monolith companies and, you know, the little guy. Um, so it's definitely hard for, for small companies to have to, to manage those types of, of costs and differences, but it's not, it's not impacting it. It's impacting their bot, you know, it's impacting these large conglomerates, but not to a point where they're not profitable. They're doing great. So let's talk about the logistics, um, problem that everybody's, you know, feeling right now. And, uh, of course, you know, we, as, as, as truckers, we, we kind of get some of the blame for this, you know, the shortage of drivers and, and on and on and on. But from your perspective, where is the bottleneck? What for ports? Well, for people going to Walmart and the shelf being empty. Ah, well, that's a different, that's a, another very recent problem, right? That's something that's come up again, which people thought we were kind of past, but right. If you think about what's happened over the past month, there's been this, there was, you know, back-to-back holidays, you know, uh, which you usually typically see a, a lull in transportation. There was I-95 that was closed down for 24 hours. There was, um, there was Omicron's variant, which created this incredibly sporadic absenteeism um, through the trucking industry and through the labor, et cetera. And so that has created a little bit of a backlog in terms of, you know, freight that's on the shelves. Um, but, you know, something successful that um, a lot of large retailers are doing are really diversifying through omni-channel strategies, right? So companies that used to focus more on bi-coastal distribution networks instead are pushing towards, you know, what you see as um, micro-fulfillment centers outside of metro areas and really focusing on those middle and final mile deliveries to the store, refilling on a more, uh, you know, frequent basis, Um in order to to keep their sales as high as possible, because obviously, if there's no freight on the shelves, these companies don't like it either. They want they want the freight on the shelves. They want it to be there. We you know they're just all we're all working through different ways to make that happen. But unfortunately, all of these types of disruptions are highly impactful because you know e you know e commerce has created also a lot more. Um, complications in how we uh, manage our freight networks as well, right? Uh, E-commerce is way more complicated in terms of pick and pack than just versus uh, I'm going to put a pallet on a truck, you know, create a truckload and put a pallet on it, right? So, you know, we're trying to, I, th- I think a lot of companies are trying to build up and and make sure that they can really streamline these, these networks, Um and get the freight where it needs to be. And when it when it comes to the ports, right, you think about how backed up those ports are when people are trying to move their network or, or, or go to a different port. It does require them to then create a new lane and a new lane pricing, right? If you think of an RFP, right, most customers have the same lanes every year, right? But if, if I move my inbound containers from, you know, export to Y port, I've now created a new over the road lane that I need to figure out how to get into my transportation network. So those are all things that they take time to build up. They take time to 
to gain regularity and and to get uh, a really solid uh, network of, of providers to help you do that. We had a question from a listener that I also was going to ask you myself, is that how reasonable is it or feasible is it to to uh, divert some of this container traffic from the Pacific coast over to the Atlantic coast? I mean, can, can it be re, um, uh, reshipped on smaller ships so it can get into uh, the, the Panama Canal? And, and, is, and is, there a, is, there, is there enough market for it um, for, for the East Coast to, to even want that? Oh, East Coast, East Coast wants this freight. Right. So if you think about, you know, the L.A. ports, um, L.A. Long Beach takes in, um, I think they're on record to take in 19 million TUs for 2021. Right. And um, all these other ports take between 500,000 TUs up to, I think, Savannah, Georgia, which is the second largest, uh, maybe had five, 5.5 million TEUs come through their ports. There's just there's no comparison to what's going on in the in the mm-hmm. LA port because there's no barriers in the Great Wide Sea. Mm-hmm. So right, right. you know you, you we talk about rerouting ships. That's probably just doesn't really occur very often. If you have a, a large vessel that's that's coming into the West Coast, you can go to one of the other West Coast um, ports, but they're all pretty backed up. Otherwise, you'd have to have a ship that is small enough to fit through the Panama Canal. Now. In, you know, going into 2022, does the East Coast have plans to expand their ability to take in larger uh, vessels? Absolutely. There's tons of investment being made uh, in Savannah, Charleston, and Jacksonville. Um, There are dredging projects going on, right, in order to provide more space to take take, uh, multiple containers next to each other, so two small ones or one big one. to put it in layman's terms, there's also, you know, there continues to be pressure on the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal to widen it in order for it to take larger and larger vessels. Um, but there's there's tons of projects going on in Savannah um, and the different ports in order to support that growth, right? I mean, I saw a commercial from, I don't know, Texas, governor of Texas or something, you know, who was like, bring your containers over here, you know? Um, So everybody wants that business. It just depends on if they have the infrastructure. The second thing that's missing from the East Coast is transloading infrastructure. There is almost no transloading ability on the East Coast. LA has tons of transloading ability, Mm -hmm. right? That's what makes it also so desirable because you can transload to over the road. You can transload so that you can uh, rail it inward or you can go directly onto the rails, you know, from the, from the shipyard. So there's just, there's so many economies of scale that are already in place in LA that they're just building towards on the East coast, hoping that, you know, um, they'll be able to, you know, translate some of those efficiencies in 2023 and 2024. But that's still a long time away, right? All these things right. take time. What effect does the does the uh, Longshoremen Union have on on this? I mean, I mean, I know Biden came up with this idea to work everybody 24 seven. Well, truckers have done that forever. But my um, guess is it's going to be a, a hard sell uh, for that union. Sure. And so, you know, what I will say, right, because I don't 
I don't necessarily want to take a, a union stance or an anti-union stance. What I will say is we live in the United States of America, which is focused on capitalism. And I will not, I, I won't, um, I won't try to put down anyone from chasing a dollar, right? That's what we're all, we're all trying to do. That's what unions are trying to do. And I think what, what's unfortunate about that is that it creates a lot of different, um, it creates a lot of different interests from, from a lot of different groups that then don't allow any progress. That's the bad, that's the bad thing, right? That's why we're not, that's why, you know, there's over 350 ports in the world and none of the ports in the United States make the top 50 in terms of efficiency because we have all these competing interests. One of them is unions in LA, but I can understand that, right? These people are being paid enormous amounts of money and they want to, they want to, they don't want that to hurt their paycheck. I wouldn't either. Right. Well, like, and two, just, if you think about it, whether the union or not, you've been doing a thing away for a long time. Right. And then everybody freaks out because of shortages and problems and Hey, we need you to completely radically change the way you do things. And you're going to go, no, no, I don't think I will you know, or pay me, you know, pay me and I'll, I'll do all kinds of stuff. I'll dance and sing. And, but I'm not just, just, because, oh, I'm sorry. You're what, what's that thing? Uh, an emergency, uh, lack of preparation on your part does not constitute emergency on mine. They they've got their contract. They've been doing their thing the way they've been doing it. And I told somebody a couple of years ago when this started, I, said, I started in this business in 97, I was 21 years old and I watched how we moved to JIT, how we moved to just in time, how we had these rolling warehouses and you could back the truck up to the dock and run it right onto the assembly line and everything worked like clockwork. And the 2020 happens and y'all screwed it up in two weeks with toilet paper and all this stuff. Y'all destroyed <laughs> the most finely tuned machine in history in a matter of two weeks. Well, is it our fault? Is it your fault? Not really, but we had things like we liked it. And everything well, was working and then something changed and all hell broke loose, you know, and now what's it going to take for us to get back to some sense of normal? So a lot of folks, so that's kind of uh, usually termed as the, the bullwhip effect, right? Which is, you know, this lack of trust in different parts of the global economy and manufacturing and transportation that lead folks to panic and do things that they think will protect them when over time it might cost them a ton of money. For example, right, you might put in a large order with a manufacturer, um, but maybe you have a fear because of something going on that that manufacturer is going to put a, a, a larger retailer who's more important, to, more important to them in front of your order. So you panic and you put in matching orders at two other competing manufacturers, right? Which in the long run will probably hurt your relationship and you could end up with more product than you actually ever wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the joke about just-in-time shipping is it's become more of a, a just-in-case, right? So they're, they're trying to build up all these different networks of, of just-in-case uh, availability so that, you know, stores are not empty, but they're empty again. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of these um, these items are, are just they, they haven't changed necessarily. 
we haven't moved away from just-in-time shipping, even with similar disruptions in transportation that occurred in 2008. Um, and I think there was another large one before that. But, you know, I don't know when we'll move away from just-in-time. Um, but, you know, I think that we're definitely making strides to diversify, you know, how we're getting freight. We're making um, uh, investments in our infrastructure in order to help help with the growth. There's a there's um, uh, people who are forecasting that the L.A. ports by 2040 might be expected to handle 40 million TEUs. So double the amount that we have now. So it's going to continue to grow. And, and you know, we need to figure out how to we need to figure out how to be the most efficient. So, like, unfortunately, like, I, I don't want to take away anything from from folks who are parts of unions. But, you know, I want to create more automation right? I want to take more of the guesswork out of things, right? We want to, we want to improve, improve that efficiency in, or, in order to be able to, to handle that growth, uh, you know, for the United States. But again, it's, it's these competing interests that continue to hamper and, and stifle our ability to grow as a country. Just, just curious, are the ports in the Southeast Union as well? I don't think so. Hey, why don't I say I'm not sure? I don't think so, though. <laughs> well, I saw, I think it was William said something about the, the ports on the east are private and the west are public or vice versa. That makes you sense know. because there's like a CEO of the um, of the Georgia Port Authority. I don't know, though. Um, I would assume so, right? I mean, unions are big in, in California. I would assume there's not as much union presence in, um, in, South, in South Carolina or Georgia yeah. and Florida. Well, you said the word trust a little bit ago, and you know I'm a I'm a big proponent of blockchain. We talk a lot about it in our side of of the business, and and how blockchain uh, decentralized autonomous networks could really help could really help us eliminate deadhead, um, stop sending capacity to places where it's not needed, and and and. Do you see much talk about that in your side of the world? Or is anybody talking about using blockchain to, to help with, with this and get that trust level up? Right. So, you know, what I will say about blockchain, right, is, you know, in terms of transportation, there's only really certain commodities that can benefit from blockchain, right? So I like to think of it as, you know, because it's this, and I, I literally haven't thought, thought about blockchain in like two years. So to answer your question, are people talking about blockchain? Not really. Okay. <laughs> like, not that I, I really am. But, you know, when blockchain first came up, right, it's about having this single source record of where something is produced, where something is coming from, right? And I always think of it as, you know, as useful for like, like blood diamonds, right? How do you know that you for sure don't have a blood diamond if you don't want to buy one like that, right? And so those might benefit, you know, produce networks um, or, you know, freight coming in that are just, you know, specialized commodities that you need a, a record, uh, a single source of truth for, for how that product, where that product's been and how it got to you. But I haven't really investigated it further than that. I wonder because our our side of the of the industry of, of transportation is a lot more decentralized. You know, only 15% of the trucks on the road are owned by these giant 
carriers like Schneider and Swift and JB Hunt. 85% are like us, you know, mm-hmm. small one to six, seven truck fleets. And I guess it's different on, you know, most of the ships are owned by a couple of, of firms, right? There, there, there's only a few people that own the ships or own Steam the shipboards. Yeah, yeah. There's like 12. Yeah. We're over here. We got, you know, 500,000 companies, you know, that are, and, and so I'm wondering if maybe that just lends it easier for us because we're already so decentralized anyway. Um, and it's, you know, picking the, the example I always use is, you know, you've got a truck in Philly and you've got a truck in Pittsburgh and they both get empty. And then the, using the networks they have available to them, one guy finds a load in Pittsburgh and the other one finds a load in Philly and they pass each other, you know, and all of this wasted time. If the, if the broker or the carrier or even the customer could know, well, hell, this truck's going to be f- five yards away. I could use him versus having to, you know, deadhead someone 150 or 200 miles over to get my load. Um, but I don't know if, I, you know, with these big, I'm not a big fan of the giant, giant, giant corporation. I'm, I'm like you said, I'm all about making a dollar. Uh, I'm all about people pursuing profit. Uh, it's totally moral for me. These big car- these giant corporations, not a big fan because they just, they get to the point where it's all about justifying and preserving their own existence where they may have started with the, you know, customer first and we're going to take care of people, but they get so giant that it's just this, oh, well, we have to survive no matter what and we'll do anything and we'll run over anybody for us to survive. So I, I just wonder, is there maybe there's some kind of reckoning coming down the road in global shipping that maybe will break that monopoly, for lack of a better word, that they have? Do you, you think that's possible? Through, uh, the you know the issue is is that it's not domestic, right? There are no monopoly laws in the global economy, you know, in the global economy. Yeah, well, I didn't mean monopoly in that sense. No, I mean, I think it's a good, it's a good reference, right? But, you know, there's so many different countries that are, uh, that have their own steamship lines, right? And that produce them and, and that's it. And they can, they, you know, the, the thing that people haven't really focused on is, you know, how can steamship lines do better? How can steamship lines create more efficiencies? And there's plenty of ways that they can, but there's no pressure on them because they also hold all the power, right? I mean, even some of these additional proposed uh, costs for for leaving containers longer than X amount of days that was supposed to go into effect in LA, I stopped following the count of it because it kept getting pushed out. Like those were costs the steamship lines were just planning to pass on to their customer anyways. Yeah. Now, are there still... Like, are there still ships floating out there or is that, has that gone down in the last, they're still out there? No. And we're, it's expected to stay strong until the Lunar New Year. So we might, we'll see, you know, we should see some of that dip uh, into late February, early March. And then we'll see if the demand continues um, like it did last year, or if it will you know, follow some more of those regular patterns that we're used to. But they're assuming because of demand as well as low inventory. So there's speculation that inventory levels are lower 
going into 2022 than they were even going into 2021, and that those stock inventory stocks will not be refilled until the later half of 2022. So most people aren't expecting there to be any sort of downturn in uh, market rates or spot market rates um, until the later half of the of the year. And I did read that someone thinks there will be a um, uh, a demand crash in 2023, midway through 2023, but that could change. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things the, that, uh, are you aware of the, uh, the Kenworth Packard issue that they had where they, they couldn't find the sensor. Um, and so trucks were just shutting down and they couldn't get the part. Did you hear anything about that? Mm -mm. So, uh, it was, it was mainly affected Packard engines in Kenworth and Peterbilt trucks. And there was this one sensor, right? And nobody had it. And so when this emission system detects a problem, it just shuts the truck off, you know, and it derates it. So you know, they were trying to come up with, oh, well, trying to get the government to let them turn the emission system off and then let them go run. And it's one of the interesting things that because of the way we run our fleet, all of our trucks are 1999 to 2007 and they don't have any of those sensors. So we've kind of insulated ourselves and we've watched that used truck market where, uh, I mean, hell, a year ago, if my best friend bought a Freightliner truck for $5,000. That same truck right now would be $25,000 because everybody's going, oh, the new trucks won't run. They can't get the parts. The, the sensor's on a ship somewhere. Let's go dig this truck out of the weeds, throw some tires and brakes on it, and go haul freight with it. So right. we kind of got... Larger fleets are holding on to their equipment longer. When they used to recycle them every three years, because there's such a delay in their orders, they're holding on to them, which is then also still driving the used truck uh, yeah. price market up as well. Yeah, it's it's insane, you know. But we're, we're expecting that crash. We're I'm expecting it probably... I was thinking end of 22, but after hearing you, it's probably going to go into 23. Um and that's why we teach what we teach on this program is low cost, no debt, so that when that crash happens and the rates fall, uh, we'll do what we did in the pandemic in 2020. Uh, 2020. We just keep right on trucking because we've got a low cost of operation. These people that are running a 2% margin are screwed. You know, they're what the uh, Larry, because Larry started trucking in 2009 and 25% of MC numbers went out of business. You know, it was, yep. it was brutal. So, you know, one of the um, similarities that you'll see in port work versus over the road transportation, right? So drayage versus um, over the road, right? We had, I think it was a 118,000 new operators for over the road uh, transportation, um, you know, getting, uh, but most of them are small to owner operators, right? Getting their authority. Um and drainage providers, there was about 12,000, which it took a long time to even get that trend up there. And only because the spot market blew up in Charleston and Savannah due to the backlog that was just basically unheard of on the East Coast. Um, so, you know, those kinds of folks were, you know, drainage um, is a particular uh, mode and vertical that runs on very small profit margins, right? That, you know, getting into that market is, is only as good as the trend of spot markets. So, you know, it, it's going to be really tough if that starts to, that freight starts to dwindle um, because of all those new owner operators. Obviously they'll 
do what they always do, which is, you know, flee to um, fleets if they can in the area. And if that demand state, you know, if that stays strong, they can at least um, find some work that way. But, but yeah, I mean, there is, we are going to come to a position where a lot of folks are in a very precarious position in terms of um, making sure that they can hit their bottom line. Are you familiar with the California AB5 legislation? Yes. Yes. You, you, what is your what is your opinion of the impact that's going to have or has had so on the, the company, uh, on the drainage at the at the east, I mean at the west coast ports? So, um the AB5 regulation. That was the one about that's contractors and owner operators, right? Right. Yeah. Classification. Yes, the classification, right. So my company, NFI, right, we have our own, uh, you know, they bought, NFI bought Cal Cartage, which was one of the largest uh, drayage uh, companies in the United States. So they have their own fleet of drivers for drayage. And then, you know, in LA, they had their, you know, owner operators were a huge part of of folks' fleets in LA. So, you know, NFI, I think, has had their, uh, their own very personal stake in this um in this uh, this legislation, and because of that, they had to you know help all these owner operators get reclassified. Like they helped all their employees get reclassified, et cetera, so that they could still keep pulling for them. But it's um, it's difficult, right? I mean, it's it's about being uh, it's legislation that that didn't necessarily potentially take into what people actually wanted. Right. And it kind of leaned on what people what they thought people really wanted, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like understanding how businesses were were running on the West Coast. So oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait, you're, you're not trying to tell me that politicians don't understand how business works, are you? <laughs> I mean, sometimes. Right. I mean, I don't know. It's tough. Right. Again, you know, my company has a has a stake in that in in that uh entire legislation and they've been trying to fight against it. Yeah. Well, Landstar, Landstar was at, at, at right up to the 11th hour when it, it got, whether well, it's an injunction or something, Landstar was telling BCOs like you, you're going to have to leave California, you know, or we can't, you know, and, and it's, it's just, well, that there was a, a lady, was it Melina Gonzalez or she was kind of one of the spearheading California assembly people or whatever they call them out there. And the stuff that she was saying on Twitter was just such nonsense, you know, that, 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 to, to act as though someone trying to be in business from themselves was somehow some kind of cheat or it just, it was nonsense. Now I, I know a lot of people are afraid it's going to go national and I don't think that it will. Um, I don't, I don't think they have the political capital, uh, no matter who's in charge, red or blue. I don't think they have the political capital to pull that off on the federal level. Uh, but California, who knows what they're capable of. Yeah. I mean, I think that that legislation really, you know, it conflated this kind of Uber Lyft network of drivers who, who are, you know, in a gig economy and do deserve insurance benefits, et cetera. Right. So I do think that there was some benefit to specific groups of people that, that it should, it should help because, you know, working through multiple gigs isn't sustainable uh, for for a lot of folks, you know, and it's not sustainable to not have, you know, healthcare in a way that that's reliable, especially in the United States. But I, I think truck drivers got pulled into it and it really conflated 
their experience with with what a Lyft driver and Uber driver goes through. And I just I don't think that they necessarily got it right. Yeah. Um. Oh, what was the other question I had? Oh, um, are you are you having a problem? Like, I don't see when like I have access to the Landstar board and I look at loads. I don't ever really see port stuff. So, are we a potential capacity source for you, or is that somebody else, or does it have to make it out to distribution before we get to it? Um. That's a good question, right? I don't really see it on load boards and stuff like that. Most uh, companies have contracts with drayage providers or different networks of drayage providers. I think a lot of a lot of uh, you know large retailers went to companies like CH Robinson, who already might have an established uh, you know market of drayage providers in different areas for different customers. Uh, but you know, most of the freight that I see right, is, is through a freight forwarder, but I never, I'm never like necessarily seeing like, Hey, um, you know, well, there might, I mean, so those customers might reach out and be like, Hey, we're having difficulty in this port. Do you have any capacity for it? Um, you know, to, to pick up some of these containers or boxes, but there hasn't necessarily been a lot of, uh, availability of that. But again, you know, Savannah and Charleston, I think are just, are really different new markets that potentially people, you know, and I, you know, our fleet that's actually in that operates in Savannah, Georgia, again, another Cal Carthage purchase is a fleet of owner operators as well. Hmm. Um, so it might just be, um, and they, I know a couple different providers also assist in those areas. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily know how that freight gets into like the spot market hands in terms of, of, uh, port pickups, but I Go is there much of the freight when the, the, the ship comes into the port, the, the, the containers taken off and set on the ground or into a chassis, is there much of the containers unloaded at the port or do they go outside before the freight actually comes off of the container? They go outside unless that terminal has a transloading facility. Okay. Gotcha. So most of the time they're picking up there. Most of the time there's stacked up of empties. So like a difference you know, that kind of, that goes into that um, uh, imbalance of containers with imports and exports that, that um, you can see is, is pre-pandemic, there was maybe 30, 39% of containers were empty at ports. And now it's about 60%. There are empty containers because we're not exporting mm -hmm. um, as, as we used to be able to do. Do you think the cross dock problem in the South is just real estate related? Oh yeah, some of it is right. So um, Norfolk, it's uh, well, one they've just never they've never uh, invested in it, right? So Norfolk is tough to have uh, tran uh, transloading facilities because Norfolk is wetlands, the, well, right? And the, and the Navy is using every available space that's there, so right. <clears throat> so they're they're a little bit more difficult to work with. But then you know that's why you know I, I mentioned. You know, Savannah is working on a project to have a 395 cross dock, uh, 395 door cross dock built directly on the terminal, which would be really interesting. And it's supposed to open in the beginning of 2023. Um, 
And so they're going to basically create space for another 1.5 million TEUs. They're going to create a transloading space right on site. There'll be plenty of places to stack up containers, as well as they're also going to reduce some traffic. They're, they have this like, I think it was a sugarcane factory or something, but they're, they're building this little road so that um, you don't have to go on a main road to move containers around to make more space. You can literally just use a yard jockey and pull them to another yard. So they're creating some really interesting uh, ways to, to navigate some growth. But again, you know, Georgia's only planning or Savannah's only planning to be able to manage up to, um, they want to be able to manage up to seven and a half million TEUs by the end of, you know, 2023, early 2024. Again, nowhere near as much as as you know, LA Long Beach, but it's really these these investments over time that are going to be needed in order to create the infrastructure that that would allow for for growth on the East Coast. Somebody asked earlier, and I had thought about this too. What part is is the future of this autonomous related? Um, what do you mean? Like, well, I mean, is there on is is there is automation an option at the ports? To, to yeah, help so, with the efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, one of the ports in Long Beach, um, they just finished a, a ton of automation so that, you know, cranes are operated uh, autonomously. Um, that's way more efficient, right? So in comparison, um, it takes twice as long to, to move containers off of a vessel uh, in LA than it does in Shanghai because Shanghai has a, a ton of automation. Norfolk, um, so it, it also depends on the type of automation. Norfolk has automation, but some of it co actually complicates the flexibility and uh, ability to kind of pivot in a different direction. So when you get to like the Norfolk po ports, they have this like what looks like a giant metal detector um, that folks drive through and it already knows kind of what truck has been assigned to what container to pick up. So it will point you in the direction to go get that container, which is cool unless you wanted to like change the destination of where that, you know, the container that driver was picking up because you had an emergency or ad hoc uh, request from a customer, right? Because you, they already have you kind of locked in. It's also like Norfolk has, you know, different appointment and, um, different appointments for pickup and also different appointments for returning trailers can also add complications because trying to match those time frames up in order to create less dry runs um, uh, is also the way to efficiency, right? The less uh, street dwell you have with chassis and containers, the more efficient you can, you can be and the more trips that you can, you can move. A lot, uh, a lot of drainage providers are, are, and drivers are paid on trips versus like their time or their miles, et cetera. So the more efficient they can make those turns, uh, the better for the companies. Um, here's a question. And it's, I just thought, so empty stack up and don't ship back to fill. So what, what happens with an empty? So um, right now what's happening with empties is that they're going back to Asia empty because they can get paid the same amount to send it empty uh, back as they, you know, uh, could previously. They don't need it full and they're not they're not filling them. They're either sitting in a yard or they're going back to to uh, China or Asia to be filled up and be paid four times they were pre pandemic to send back to the United States, which is why our 
ex, you know, our exports are down and our imports are way up. Now, someone had said something about the cost of a container. So what, what's the story with it costs to, to build it, to obtain it, to buy it? What, what's, what's going on with the, the, the cost of the container itself? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not okay. sure I have. I, I don't okay. know. Well, maybe, well, I, I just, I heard something about that and it seemed like that, that problem was causing it, you know, well, I guess the question is somebody builds a container, right. And it must get used many, 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 many times. Right. Yeah, I'm sure but, at some point it, you know, someone's going to build it into a tiny house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's what I was thinking of before. Um, but when you're, when you're, when you're ordering one and you, I'm guessing that's just a part of the cost is renting it or, or you know, that. Yeah. I don't think that they own those containers. <clears throat> I don't think, I don't think people own the containers. Their containers are owned by some steamship lines, some rail providers, right. Um, those are who own the containers. Um, the, unless you, purchase your own container and slap your sticker on the side of it. Uh, most of them are owned by the, those larger uh, providers. Okay. JB Hunt has a ton of container, right? Has a ton of containers. Yeah. You can see them when they, when they go by or it'll say they're UP containers. Um, you know, they're, they're usually containers or they're, they say Marisk on them because they're, you know, that steamship lines containers, but right. most companies don't buy their own containers. So I don't know. I lost my question. Larry, you got one? Well, not really. I mean, it, it's intriguing to me. I, I guess I'm still hung up because I'm always looking for the opportunity. Okay. That's kind of my, I'm, you know, I'm just, a, my son calls me the serial entrepreneur. So I'm still hung up on this, on this, the, the intriguing part of deferring um, this freight to the East coast and, and, and what, what the opportunity is there, you know, um, and what time frame are we talking about? Um, right. I mean, a lot of the projects, those dredging projects that I, I, I mentioned in Charleston, Savannah and Jacksonville are supposed to be completed in 2024, Hmm. but there's still, I mean, again, there still drops in the bucket. Um, and Charleston is stuck in a, in a, um, in a legal battle that they might not get out of, even when they, the, hopefully once they're done with their dredging project, they can, you know, they'll be able to take in, in more freight, but, um, you know, that's only like 700,000 TEUs to that port. Um, so, you know, I, again, it's it's going to take a really long time. If the if the demand is expected to continue, and we're supposed to see growth, right? As we we always have, right? They make bigger and bigger ships. They ship more and more things. Uh, we import more and more. As we continue to see that that growth through the global economy, they're they're going to have to grow these different ports. You know, these different ports of entries, grow the canals, grow, and grow the ships. Um, well, it doesn't but, seem it doesn't seem like it it would be beneficial if 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 you're a ship a steamship line mm-hmm. and you can build a super super giant ship to hold all these containers. 
well, it, it doesn't seem very beneficial to you to, to give a crap if it's going to East coast or West coast, you want to build the big ship you can and get it to the place. So it doesn't seem like if we want this stuff to go to the East coast and it's going to have to be a smaller ship to go through the canals, then they're going to have to load a smaller ship over here. Well, why do they want to do that when they can load this big one and take it to the West coasts? You know, is anybody talking about expanding ports on the West coast other than long beach and Seattle or. Um, you mean like adding another port? Yeah. Um, it's not a, good... a, it's not a quick fix, but. Right. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure, I think there are plans to expand, you know, long beach, uh, and LA and San Diego and, and all of those, they're, they're all, they all want to build that infrastructure and, you know, continue to increase their efficiencies. <laughs> um, but you know, those would take three to four years. Um, and with that, everything keeps getting bigger and bigger. Well, you know, I, I'm, I have a, I'm an optimistic look, um, for the next five years, I think technological advancements, decentralization. I think blockchain is going to be a big part of it. I think cryptocurrency is going to be a big part of it. Um, I'm, my, I'm hopeful that having more currencies to trade with may take some of this control away from some of these big established players globally. You know, maybe, maybe we can get some more power in the, in the hands of the people. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm excited to see where we head over the next three or four or five years. Um, I just, whenever I turn on the television, well, I don't turn on the television, but when I hear that some politician or, you know, leader says something and, oh, we got a solution. I can't, I roll fast enough because I just can't imagine what monumental stupidity they're going to come up with next. And it doesn't matter if it's this one or the last one or the one before. Um, I've just watched them be really good at screwing stuff up and then never taking the blame for it. Um, you know, in trucking, in American trucking, we have, we have not kept our own house in order enough that, uh, you know, the state wants to come in and fix some of our problems that we created. And then we don't seem to be able to want to fix them on our own. Um, you know, we, we, we have it with driver training, you know, we hired a guy a couple of years ago, well, a year ago, was a senior trainer, mind you, senior trainer, didn't know how to read a map, you know, and I'm like, do you know how to read a map? Oh, no, we weren't allowed to have maps. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. So we're, we're trying to bring people in and, and train them up to be self motivated, critically thinking, logical business owners, but they come through the front door of these corporations and they're turned into robots that did just shut up and do what the little box on the dash tells you to, and don't think about it and don't ask questions. And it's created a challenge for us that I didn't see coming. You know, when I started, we had maps and no GPS and all this stuff. So I had to learn it that fundamental way. But now they just throw all this technology at them. And, and it, it's really, it's really unfortunate what we're doing to people. And I'm hoping that maybe we can start changing that on this level because they're sure as hell not going to do it. Do you think that the cycle of dependency on imports is going to change a move a little bit because of what we're going through right now? <clears throat> 
So, you know, I think that there's a, a, the buzzword that has been going around is this term regionalization, which is mm -hmm. more just about um, creating more opportunities and flexibility in their transportation networks in order to pivot away from specific manufacturers or have manufacturers in multiple different locations in order to, to insulate them from potential loss of sales. Um, so yeah, that means, you know, getting, you know, these micro fulfillment centers, um, it means relying on more than one producer of different parts. Um, and it means making sure you don't have all your eggs in one basket for sure. I'm not sure if it will pull more domestic manufacturing in other than the chassis thing. Um, that's really the only thing I've, I've heard of. Um, but, um, there could be opportunities to, to, uh, for more American manufacturers. But again, it, it just depends on, you know, if anyone will buy it. Comment on Peter's um, question there or statement uh, about the bottleneck being the, the crane capacity. Um, sure. Part, part of it is crane capacity, right? When you've got these bunches of vessels that, that come in um, and only you run out of space in terms of where to move it. So, you know, think about, you're at a port, you've got, you know, two cranes moving, you've got drivers coming in, you've got your, your, your uh, containers stacked up six high, and you need to get to a container that's three deep. You also then have a crane that's moving containers off of a specific ship, which is taking longer and longer to unload because you don't have free space and you're trying to find and move all these magic parts at the, you know, these move all these puzzles at the same time. Sure, crane capacity, of course, will will create some barriers in the same way that a cross dock facility that's yard was totally jammed up would have difficulty or, you know, lose their efficiencies in terms of how quickly they can get uh, a trailer to a door when there there's no yard space. It's the same thing. It's the same thing for these crane operators at the ports. There are just so many things slowing them down. So away from, uh, uh, apart from the geographical challenge, if you're shipping something and you can ship it to, let's just use Jacksonville as an example, even though it might be more trouble and more expensive, a smaller ship, but you can get it unloaded and the ship's not sitting out in the Pacific Ocean for weeks on end. Is, is that not a strategy that would be um, you know, desirable? Mm, I might need you to rephrase the question. How is the, the getting away from you having to sit out in the ocean for weeks or months or however long they're out there versus paying the extra, going to the extra trouble of coming to the East Coast instead? When, at what point does that become a viable alternative or will it ever? Um, Assuming you could get unloaded quicker, I guess was my Right. So, I mean, you literally, you'd have to do a comparison in terms of, you know, what are the different, like it is, it's cheaper to ship direct on the trans, uh, you know, trans-Pacific pathway. Sure. sure right. Sure. Um, if you're, uh, if, if, if you, you'd have to compare with how long the contain the vessel is sitting out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And how long the container, like, I guess you, you wouldn't necessarily start, um, assuming costs from a steamship line until that container actually hits the ground, right? Because then you enter a free day space, then you enter, you know, after that you, you, you can, you have a, you have fees with those ports 
to pick up a container during that time period. Then you have, you know, an additional between seven to 10 days to return that, that container back to port for the steamship line. Otherwise you can get into additional costs with per diem. So there's just a lot of different legs and facets that you would have to equate into that to figure out if there were, if it would be profitable and the amount of volume that you can get in to one side of the country versus Jacksonville, since you, that's the example you gave. Um, it, you know, it, it would, you'd have to, you have to be smart at math and do all the calculations. So, so what what is the average length of hold time now in the the West Coast, getting a ship to port that's that's basically buoyed off offshore waiting its turn? So, um, uh, I don't know the exact answer to that, like what the average dwell time is uh, currently, but you know I do know that you know. Pre-pandemic, it used to be about 45 to 60 days in order for uh, a, chi- you know, a container from China to get to the ports of LA and to then get that container back to China. Now it's about 113 days. So there's I haven't looked at the average dwell time at the LA port- ports recently to, to know that off the top of my head, unfortunately. So is most of this those would be bulk shipping, right? Like... You know, when I press the button on Amazon, it's not like it's coming from China. It came from China and it's here. It's in a fulfillment somewhere. And Amazon is showing me the stuff that's closest to me. It's either in Kentucky or Ohio or somewhere, right? They're not going to show me the stuff that I can't get. You know, I remember one time I ordered a little keyboard that actually did come from China and it took Mm -hmm. forever, you know, and it finally came. So most of this stuff is bulk stuff that we're getting here. And then we're kind of getting the access to it once it's made it into the fulfillment center or mm-hmm. the mini warehouse or whatever. Right. So we're just, it's kind of like we're We've got the, the hose has been choked off a few times and, and that's it. We're seeing it over here, but it's, it's the problem is actually over here. So yeah, the problem is very much further upstream than we can, we actually can see. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, it's it's really fascinating stuff that most people don't think about. You know, um, we just think about somebody calls me and I go back into a dock and they load me. And if it takes more than an hour and 15 minutes, I'm pissed off and I'm mad and I want somebody to pay me detention and I'm going to go do it all over again. But it's just the, the this this vast global shipping network is really, really uh, an amazing machine. And I'm glad you've given us a peek behind the curtain. Um Thanks for having me on. Any, and sorry for any questions that I, I couldn't answer. No, I think you did. Agree. Oh, wait a minute. Laura did have one question. Uh, once the containers come into port, it has to be inspected before it releases to move out. Is this part of freight moving slower? Like, like is it uh, all the safety, terrorism, yada, yada, yada? Are that, did that add to this problem of, of having to expect everything? Or No. I mean, most of this, you know, it really would depend on the product and those would be known channels where that product would be coming in where there might be a there could be a container hold right but i haven't heard of any extraordinary container holds more than there usually would be so i would say that's not really like that's already always been a disruption is a you know a container hold maybe it's missing some paperwork or needs to be inspected or whatever but i don't think that that's necessarily something that's been exacerbated well, I'll let 
our smart aleck driver, William, have the last uh, word here. Have you asked Elon Musk? Yeah, I mean, I talk to Elon all the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, just just uh, start importing from the moon and we'll be fine. <laughs> That's why I can't get a hold of him. You're getting him on the phone all the time, right? right. Yeah, I'm on the phone with him all the time. So. I did hear him say something pretty profound the other day. He was in some interview and he said that maybe we should stop trying to improve things that shouldn't exist. I don't hmm. You know, there's probably some stuff that shouldn't exist, but we keep we keep it alive anyway because we like it or it's got some legacy tied to it. Maybe there's some stuff we should just kill and let it die, yeah. you know. Competing uh, interests, right? Yeah. Because people have a stake in keeping those things alive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sure. Well, Sarah, it's been fantastic. We thank you for being here. Everybody check out Sarah on TikTok at Logistalks. And uh, she'll keep you up to date on what's going on. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank Good you. Well, well, you think did you, you think, learn anything? Yeah. Well, you know, yes, but I have to I have to analyze it. You know. Okay. Um, you think we could build a lunatic ship? <laughs> well, well, if you remember a couple of years ago, um. Was when I was first talking with, with uh, what's his name, Chattanooga Freight Waves. Uh, yeah. There was a big thing about changing the fuel, right? Right. Was, oh yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They're changing. They were, going the to, they were going to diesel number two. Yeah, and there was going to be a huge yeah. fuel shortage everywhere because shipping was going to move to diesel two. Yeah, and that, <clears> yeah. So um, it never materialized. Yeah. Well, you know, they it's their benefit scared the hell out of people. The sky was falling. I mean, yeah. we're not going to be able to find any diesel anywhere. <clears throat> I'm just amazed at, uh, you know, there's just so much, so much moving and, ha and happening that we don't think about. And honestly, we don't care, you know, but the, the, cause I never thought about what did she say? 17 million TEUs to 500,000 over here or something crazy. You know, that's. Uh, that's, that's, that's an ass load of freight y'all. That is a, I, w I wonder if, you know, you have this famous saying about owner operators where the axis of the universe goes through. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if steamship captains have that same stigma. That's you know, it's very possible. I know there's a bunch of people that work at the port. I'm pretty sure to feel that way. Um, uh, we, we may, may, may or may not have talked about them a little bit tonight. So I wonder, I mean, so is Biden's 24-hour thing going on at the ports? Is that working? Uh, I Anybody, are if they it working? is, he don't know, you know. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if anybody's actually working over there right now. Yeah, it would be interesting to see. Uh, you know, again, that, that book, um, I think William. He was to it. Yeah. 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 He put it in here somewhere. Um, it's really, there it is. Yeah, it's one uh, of the, how the, how the shipping container made the world small and the world economy bigger. Um, it, it just gives you a great. It also does a fantastic job of outlining the importance of the Motor Carrier Act in 1980. Mm -hmm. um, how one of the things I'll never forget from that book was it was so expensive because of the ICC to move freight by truck or rail from Seattle to the East coast that they would go all the way down and around mm -hmm. South Africa or, you know, I don't know if they built the canal yet, but it was literally cheaper to go halfway around the world 
than to ship across the United States because of how high the rates are. And of course, these <clears throat> knuckle draggers that long for the good old days, we need to get back to regulation. No, we don't. Not, nothing that we do would even be remotely possible if not for the Motor Carrier Act of 1980. Yeah. Rocky said, or Phil, sorry, Phil says the security guard's working. <laughs> That's a damn truth right there. Another smart ass in our group. Right <laughs> <then>. <laughs> um, well, you know, here's a new brokerage opportunity. Prioritize the freight and figure out the cheapest way to get it there. The, the problem is, is access. You know, you've, you've got ships have to have to be able to come into a place. That place is a port, right? And so unless um, somebody is going to spend the money to either build more ports or make the ports bigger or make the canals bigger, I'm thinking that the option, you know, um, we got Africa, you know, we got, we, we can, if we're going to move uh, imports or move manufacturing somewhere, get it out of China and get some of it over to Africa um, and build you know, a cross dock in Africa. Yeah. And then break it up. And <clears throat> I'm with Peter. I, I, somebody is going to solve this problem for a huge profit. Um, yeah. You know, um, I'm, I, that's was, that was what I was trying to get. You know, my question to Sarah was that, you know, at some point there's a tipping point. There's a, it's going to be more cost effective to get your shit unloaded and be done with it and move on. Even if it does mean going to a smaller port into a, I don't know. I, well, talking, talking but I don't, but I, I think, I mean, if you think about it, 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 it's our version of that, I think would be the big giant rolls of paper out of the Georgia Pacific place, right? It's big, it's tall, it's heavy, and it fills up the trailer. But that's not, that roll of paper is not this, right? It, it, this is much further down and much closer to me. This stuff that's on these containers, it's, it's raw goods, it's durable goods. Well, if we can find the one that has those sensors in it. Oh, man. man. Send SEAL Team 6 in there with that helicopter and they could rope down in there and grab that sucker and... Well, we don't need those sensors. I don't. I don't care. No, they, but look at the money we can make. How many oh, trucks are sidelined right now? Yeah, I mean, what do you think the one we could sell one of those for right now? Well, but wait a minute. That'd be what's that called? Price gouging. That's yeah. illegal. We can't do that. Yeah. Well, uh, hour and twenty-two minutes. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, I like her. I like her a lot. She's yeah. very knowledgeable, and um, she's a great follow on TikTok. Because she she just gives you these little nuggets, you know. Um, now she uses all that corporate ease, all that corporate speak, you know, that you have to know how to decipher. She don't speak hillbilly. Um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> she don't speak hillbilly. <laughs> <clears throat> she's from well, Philly. She knows her shit. I'm no no kidding. Yeah, um, she's very very impressive. So a uh, little side note here: we do have three or four trucks. That we're adding on this month. Yep. Yep. Um, we do. We would love to have, you know, um, anybody who's interested to reach out to us. I would ask you this. Um, let us know how you how you found us and let us know how familiar you are with us. 
again, my, my slam on TikTok is if, if you listen to one of these TikToks for 90 seconds and then reach out to us, um, you don't know anything about us. But if you go back and you watch episodes 49 through 103 now, <clears throat> you'll know what you're getting into. And, um, but we'd love to have, uh, we'd love to have you, uh, check us out and, uh, we are going to expand. We also do have an opening in our platform division, uh, that just yep. opened up. So, uh, we're adding another platform truck. So anybody that wants to come here and, and do the lunatic thing, but do it on a platform, we're, we're looking, um, we're looking for you. So, um, Candace saying we want him to work too much. Well, maybe, but Ken, you've already got your truck paid for and you're good to go. So you don't have to work that hard. Enjoy it, brother. You, are you going to uh, Memphis, Ken? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. We're going to be in Memphis at the BCO days. Rocky, I have good news. All the parts are ordered. I'm hoping to have it back together and running in a, about 12 days if everything goes well. If the shipping, godforsaken shipping people will get to, mm, it's been a challenge. <laughs> So, a couple of announcements in that regard. Uh, Landstar guys, uh, we are attending BCO Days in Memphis. If you guys want to hang out with us or come meet us or whatever, we also will be, we'll be at Matt's this year, assuming that they're going to have it. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be spending one day in the Landstar booth. Uh, we'll be spending another day over around Kevin Rutherford's uh, crew, uh, Mike Beckett, uh, Bruce Mallinson, uh, you know, all, all those vendors that we – usually talk about with kevin um so uh look us up and and we'd love to meet you and and, and talk with you and hang out so um anyway that's coming up memphis is uh, end of february and and uh Matt is in march yep who uh y'all send us some guest suggestions who should we get on here to talk to um We've had two, two, three guests in a row here. Um, Don't judge me, Grant. <laughs> we are going. I tell you, we are. We are going to have a couple of our um, graduates. Uh, we're going to have um, um, Seth, our our number, our our poster boy, is going to come on. We're Chris, and I also have a couple of uh, mentoring clients that have really, really, really taken off. And so mm -hmm. we're going to have either one or both of those guys on pretty soon. Uh, they don't yeah. know this yet. They're probably finding this out right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're going to have them on to talk about our mentoring program, what it's, what it's done for them, what's meant for them. So uh, we will spread those out over the next few weeks too. So, Yep. I put one of my <laughs> mentoring guys on a $14,000 week last week. You so. dog, you. You work mm. him to death. Hey, <clears throat> come here to make the money. Let's go make the money. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, we'll see y'all next time, maybe in another week or so, and uh, come see us at Matt's or uh, BCO Days. Good talking to you guys. Um, appreciate you listening, and uh, you guys stay safe out there. Watch this weather. we got some messes out there right now, so mm -hmm. be careful out there, okay? And we'll see you next time. All right. Good night. Sure. <laughs>